It's good to be back with you after a week off. Last week, we uh, soon I went out of the country all the way to White Rock. That's British Columbia, for those of you that don't know. Um, stayed up there and uh, went to a... Uh, Went to a thing over in Richmond, B.C. called the Night Market. You know, you, you get these uh, brochures uh, in the hotel, and you look at this, go, oh, that looks pretty cool, you know. And so it turns out the Night Market in Richmond is like a food court on steroids. Uh, maybe literally uh, just every kind of, uh, especially Asian food you can imagine, and then... Uh, uh, a fair number of trinkets uh, for sale as well. So we uh, we went over there and uh, and in the in the I guess I've never been quite down and maybe in that part of Richmond, but between Richmond and Vancouver proper, there's a fair number of uh, limited access roads, uh, fair number of uh, freeways or highways and on ramps and off ramps, and I was pretty sure I knew where I was going. And I was pretty sure I knew how to get there. Uh, some of you feel that way when you go through Seattle. Of course, this is the, the straight part of the road in Seattle. But, but up in Vancouver, there's, there's these roads going this way and that way. And, and uh, I didn't need no stinking GPS. <laughs> I can drive around in circles all by myself. Thank you very much. So uh, I'm pretty sure we saw most of the freeways right in that section of uh, town. I thought I knew where I was going. I, I, I knew where I wanted to go, and I thought I knew how to get there. But I was wrong. And the result of that was wasting time and money. For the next three weeks, I want to talk to you about how to get somewhere in the Christian life. I think to a certain extent, most Christians know that where they're supposed to be going is toward being like Christ. But there are some detours that we can take that will keep us from getting there. And the net effect really is wasting our life. And so I want to talk to you in the next three weeks. uh, I've called this short series of sermons, Three Mistakes That Will Detour Your Spiritual Life. And uh, the first one is this, substituting intention for diligence. Substituting intention for diligence. Um, I believe I told you to turn to Second Peter, and that was not correct. Turn to Romans chapter 6, please. We're going to get to Second Peter eventually, but we're going to start in Romans chapter 6. There are some spiritual detours that we can take that will waste our days, and potentially bring us to some ruin that we didn't need to come to. And the first is substituting intention for diligence. In Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, 
certainly we will be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be the slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Spiritual growth begins with righteous plans. And I, I, I want to help you understand what I mean by that from this chapter. Verses 1 through 7 give us this very important truth. We have been freed from sin by our spiritual connection with Christ. He talks about here us being connected through baptism. And this is talking about real spiritual baptism. Real baptism like this. By one spirit were we all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and been made to drink into one spirit. When we accept Christ as our Savior, when we acknowledge our sin and that He died for us, one of the benefits of that is that the Holy Spirit takes us and puts us into the body of Christ. The word baptism in the New Testament, the literal meaning is immerse or immersion. One of the ways they would use it was dyeing cloth. And if you have a piece of cloth and you want to make it a certain color... You don't flick the color at it unless you're a hippie and you're doing tie-dye. Otherwise, you dip it all the way down in. You immerse it. You baptize it. That's what it meant. And here, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, The Holy Spirit took you at salvation and baptized you, put you into Christ. That's not a baptism like in and out. That's a baptism here where he uses words like unite and together with. You have been put into the body of Christ. All of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior have been put into the body of Christ. Now, one of the benefits of that connection with Christ is what he's talking about here. He said Christ died on the cross, and he was buried, and then he came back to a newness of life. He says that's what happened in you as well. You died to the power of sin. That's why verse 14 sums up this passage by saying, Sin shall not have dominion over you. The whole point of dying with Christ is that sin cannot control us. We have been put together in the likeness of his death and of his life. Would you say this together with me? Sin cannot control me. Now think about that for a minute. You know, back when Ronald Reagan was president, his wife started an anti-drug campaign called Just Say No to Drugs. A great little tagline. 
It failed horribly. You know why? Because if you're an unbeliever, you cannot say no to sin. And unfortunately, many Christians come into the Christian life somehow not realizing that the power of sin has been broken. Sin has been crucified. Our old sinful nature died, and a new spiritual life was raised again. We have to realize sin cannot control us. And then the second truth that is equally as important, not only have we been freed from the power of sin by our connection with Christ, but we have been made alive to God by by our connection with Christ as well. Look at verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, in other words, if we were so connected with him that we died, then when he came back to life, we also live with him. Knowing that that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion. For the death that he died, he died once once for all to sin, but the life that he lived, he lives to God. We have been made alive to God by our connection with Christ. John put it this way. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What a powerful thought. God makes his home with us. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I can be righteous like Christ. Would you say that with me? I can be righteous like Christ. If you don't remember anything else today, would you remember those two lines? Sin cannot control me. I can be righteous like Christ. Now, am I saying by that that it's easy to say no to sin? No, quite the opposite. And that is the point of this sermon Because many people intend to live righteously. Many people intend to say no to sin. But not so many diligently work at developing the righteousness of Christ. You see, here is the critical starting point, the critical factor here in verse 11. We must choose to believe this. Now, our choosing to believe us does not make it true. It makes it operative in our life. There's a difference. I don't, I don't create my reality. I acknowledge the reality that already exists. The word in the, the King James and the New King James is reckon, reckon yourselves. And uh, in the NIV, uh, I, I believe, uh, uses the word count uh, in, in the NIV translation. But the word reckon, I, you know, the, the, when I think of the word reckon, I was thinking, where do we use that word in English? Now, if you remember some TV shows from way back in the day when I was a kid, there was some old Southerners that would say, I reckon it so, you know, and they would talk like that, and probably some of them still talk that way. But what does that word mean? There is a word, there's a phrase in, uh, I believe, in flying called dead reckoning. And it doesn't mean D-E-A-D, dead. It means D-E-D. It's from deductive reckoning. And the word reckoning actually means to, to take 
a whole dead reckoning is when you take a series of points and plot where you're going to, whether it's in an airplane or on a on a ship or whatever. You're, you're you, you've added up all of these factors, and where am I heading? What God says here is we need to add up all of this truth and realize that it is true and live like it is true. We need to decide that it is true, to accept that it is true. Now that that ought to have a, a revolutionary effect on our spirituality. I don't know what sins plague you. I know what sins I struggle with. Do you face those sins with this thought? I don't have to do this. I do not have to do this. Or do you face those sins going, well, boy, I wish, I intend. Righteousness begins, righteousness begins with a righteous plan. We have to choose to believe this. And then based on verses 12 through 13, we have to make a plan to live it out. Therefore, verse 12, do not let do not let sin control your mortal body. Do not let it. In other words, and, and, and please, come and argue with me after church if you'd like. I'd be glad to talk with you about it. What God says is when we sin, we are letting it happen. We're letting it happen. Say, ah, oh, you don't know how hard it is to say no to this one thing. You, you might be right. I may not know how hard it is to say no to that thing. I know how hard it is to say no to some other things. He says, don't let it happen. In other words, look at those things in your life that need to change and say, that is not going to happen again. I am going to make a plan to do better. Do not let sin rule your mortal body that you should obey its desire. Verse 13, do not present your members. And he's talking about your hands and feet, your eyes, your ears, the parts of your body. Do not present your body as an instrument of unrighteousness. In other words, don't put it in the place where sin can happen. Instead, present it to God as being alive from the dead and and your members as members of righteousness to God. There has to be a plan if there's going to be righteous living. Do you remember this little children's song? Some of you might. The things I used to do, don't do them anymore. The things I used to do, don't do them anymore. The things I used to do, don't do them anymore. There's been a great change since I've been born again. There's been a great change. Yes, and we echo back and forth. And then the next verse is, the places I used to go, don't go there anymore. That is a very simplistic rendering of a very profound truth. Are you presenting your members as members of unrighteousness? Are you saying, here is my body, I place it in the place of sin? Or are you taking your body and placing it in the opportunity to do righteousness? It's like my favorite old joke about the guy who got his nose broken three places. And his friend said, don't go to those places anymore. It takes a plan. You have to sit and say, wait a minute, what's going on? Is there a sin I need to conquer? I will not conquer it by intention. 
I will conquer it by plan. Is there a godly behavior that needs to be started? I will not start it by intention. I will start it with a plan. Are there aspects of your thought life that need to be rearranged? It will not happen by a wish or a dream. It will happen by a plan. Do you want to become a strong, mature Christian? It will not happen by intention. It will happen by a plan. Do you want to accomplish things for God? It begins with a plan. If your approach to godliness is, well, I hope so, someday, I'm waiting for God to lead me. I had a person tell me that one time about a particular habit they were struggling with. I'm waiting for God to tell me I should stop this thing. God has already led. God has already told us how we should live. It's not about our intention. It's about our plan. Make a plan, figure it out, lay it out, map it out. But the plan is only the beginning. Turn now to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, after the book of Hebrews and James, and after 1 Peter. 2 Peter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's talking to believers. So he's clearly not talking about some way of earning salvation. Grace and peace, verse 2, be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has already given to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness. We have what we need through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. That's the word of God. That through these things, through the word of God, you can partake in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But for this very reason, giving all diligence... Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful. There's two words here that I, I want to emphasize out of this passage, which, which really lays out a process of Christian growth. The first is in verse 5. He says, give all diligence. The word diligence, the original meaning has, is something like speed or haste. As in, when, you, when parents ask their children to take out the garbage, and they move like this, and they say, I'm doing it. And you say, well, get with it! That's what that, verse, that word is. He says, because God has given you all of these great spiritual blessings, all the power you need to, 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 to use to grow in Christ, he says, for that reason, get with it. One of the instructions I remember from the football coaches on my son's high school team, I, I helped uh, volunteer with the team, so I was around, and I would be right there next to the coaches. And, and during a game, when a guy would get the ball, the, the, the instruction from the coach was this. Get up field! I guess some of them 
kind of hesitated once they got the ball. Maybe they thought the goal was to get the ball. His, his mind was, get up to the goal. There's a goal. Now move in that direction. We add to diligence the word self-control in verse 6. And the word self-control literally means to be in power or in control. Uh, I've made a, 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 a definition this way. Spiritual self-control is the godly person ruling their fleshly body. Now, if you put several of these truths together, just to summarize this a bit, when we accept Christ as our Savior, the power of sin is killed, as in sin cannot rule us. That's what Romans chapter 6 says. But we still are living in a human body. The same human body that caused Adam and Eve, who had no sin in them, that same human body, that same human mind that caused them to rebel against God, to pursue something they thought would be better than God's plan. And so those human struggles are still with us, and there are the desires of the flesh and the, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, First John tells us. And so we have to... Us, the newborn Christian living in this human body, have to take control of that body. John MacArthur has defined spiritual self-control this way. It's living by principle, not desire. Um, I desire strawberry shortcake. And it's a fruit, so that's a health food. So is the cream right out of the cow. See, that's my desire. But if I'm going to live by self-control, I have, to, I have to honestly look at it and say, now how much is appropriate for me to eat? Oh, maybe just a little more. Okay, that's, that's the battle. That's where we live. We have to learn what is right. That's the plan. And then we have to exert control over the plan. Well, there has to be self-control. One of the conundrums of the Christian life, one of the, the challenges in understanding it is, the Spirit is supposed to be controlling me, and yet God says, I'm supposed to exert self-control. And so some people sit and wait and say, well, I'm waiting for the Spirit to do something. Meanwhile, their life falls apart. Other people seem to ignore God and try to, try to have a regimented life on their own, and that falls apart as well. The Apostle Paul put it like this, I beat my body, and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Wow, there's a challenging verse. I beat my body. Now, did he, you know, there are folks in religious groups today who literally beat themselves trying to merit some favor for God or something like that. No, the Apostle Paul didn't literally beat his body. He was saying, I, I am in this battle with my flesh and I have to do, I have to really get after it. Would you think for me a minute about the Apostle Paul's existence and what, what this battle of the flesh might have been like for him? From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils of the city, perils of the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings, in cold and nakedness, Besides the other things, besides everything I've just told you, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who's made to stumble and I don't burn with indignation? Do you understand this stuff almost seems like it was more significant to him than the other stuff? But would you think with me about the other stuff for a minute? I've never been beaten Okay, I had a couple little guys chase after me once, but I managed to escape. But I've never been beaten. I don't know what that's like. Has anybody ever been beaten? I mean, you know, really? Took it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Can you imagine getting up the next day and saying, I'm going to go right back where that happened and do it again? Five times I received 40 stripes. 40 stripes minus one. The law was they had to count up to 39 just in case they had mistaken the count because if they went over 40, then the punisher, the, the executioner, he got the punishment because he, he went too far. Isn't that gracious? So only 39 times with the cat of nine tails. Five times he received 39 stripes. Now, how long does it take you to start thinking, I'm not sure if this way of life is going to work out for me. You know, I, I went over here and preached, and they, and they beat me with a cat of nine tails. I went over here, and they threw me in prison. I went over here, they beat me with rods. You think, isn't there some place that likes the gospel? You, you understand that? I mean, because this is a physical challenge. This isn't just a spiritual challenge. Here is the spiritual challenge, this, and, and stuff he couldn't do anything about. But can you imagine getting up and saying, I'm going to go to this place and preach the gospel, and I might get beat for it. That is, a, that is an issue of spiritual self-control, because his body would say, man, you aren't healed from the last time. And who would, who would criticize a man who just took a beating from, from getting away and healing up for a while? What would your flesh want to do? Paul took a hold of his flesh and made it conform to God's will. That's what spiritual self-control is. He made it conform to God's will based on a desire to please the God who saved him from his sin. That wasn't easy for Paul. 1 Corinthians 9 says it, says it wasn't easy. He said, I beat my body daily. If you're waiting till you feel like being righteous, it won't happen. If you're waiting for the Holy Spirit to miraculously reconfigure your life, it won't happen. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in the power of God, and I've seen it at work. But it works, according to Romans 6, when I present myself, my members, as members of righteousness. If I am unwilling to, to make that decision and make that plan and take that action to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, then the transformation of God doesn't happen. The transformation of God comes together with my decision for righteousness. And what happens is I actually become a more godly person. 
If you're talking about the spiritual life but not doing it by a disciplined effort, you're just talking. And that counts for nothing with God or with you. Number three, spiritual growth is defined by consistent forward progress. Sometimes we think of spiritual growth as as like a mountaintop we're going to get to. And uh, that's not the model that God has given us. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Brethren, I do not count myself to have already apprehended or arrived at being like Christ. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press. In other words, he's leaning into the race. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as many of us are mature, let us have this mind. Christian maturity is a constant climb toward Christ-likeness. There is, there is always a sense, if, if you would envision a mountainside and we're working our way up the mountain and the top of the mountainside is being like Christ. There's always people up here farther up the path than you. There's always people behind you and, and you're moving along. And so we might say, well, these people are really mature. Or we might say these people are less mature. That's what the the Apostle Paul says. If you're one of these mature people, have this mentality. But the mentality is, I'm not there yet. I'm on the path. I'm on the climb. 1 John tells us when the climb is over. Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We don't know exactly what our existence in heaven will be like, but we know that when He is revealed, when Jesus is revealed... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Christian maturity is a constant climb toward Christ-likeness. If you are diligent about growing in Christ, you're aiming at consistent forward progress. You're in the word and prayer daily. You're giving effort to learning God's word deeply and better year by year. You're listening to God's input through other believers. You're never content with your level of godliness. If you ever get to a place where you say, well, I've, I've climbed up this mountain about far enough, then you know for a fact you've stopped growing in Christ. Can any of us, if the Apostle Paul, if the Apostle Paul said, I'm not there yet, I think we've all got some stuff to go to, some, th- some things to do. The only way to maintain a consistent forward progress is to make it a priority. I have a plan to exercise regularly. My, my plan right now is to make three times a week going down to the gym. Um, a week ago, I was on vacation, and I was around the house, did some stuff at home, but I had a plan. No, I had an intention to exercise four times during the week, okay? And I actually made it two times. Because one of those times, I got up in the morning, I had my devotions like I always do, and I, was, uh, I needed to find a place where we were going to go on the weekend. We're going to have a little weekend getaway, so I got on the computer. And I'm looking at Vancouver, White Rock, and I'm, just, uh, I'm looking at all this stuff. And pretty soon, an hour had gone by. Okay. And I was hungry. 
You see, I, I plan my workout in the morning, so I go and work out, and then I go and eat. I can't work out on a full stomach. I can barely work out on an empty one. But So I say, well, I'm just going to go eat. End of story. In a list of priorities, this is profound. Now you're going to want to write this down. Number one gets done. Whatever it is you need to do in the Christian life, it's got to rise up to the top of the list. Now, I understand we all have many things in our lives. I mean, I have a wife, I have children, I have grandchildren, I have a house to take care of, I'm a pastor of a church. I have many things in my life. I have to take care of all those things. I can't just somehow set it all aside and and go over here and, and, and do this one thing, whatever it might be. I realize I have to balance all those priorities, but sometimes change doesn't happen. Sometimes godliness doesn't happen because we intend to do it, but it's it's way down the priority list. My challenge to you is to say, if I'm going to put forth a diligent effort, I've got to pull this up to the top of the list and, and, and somehow find the way to make it a priority to honor God, to change that life pattern, to learn God's word, to pray about everything. Whatever it is that's got to change in your life to say it's got to be a, the number one priority. Well, why should we choose the path of effort at Christ-like living? Why should we choose this disciplined effort? I want to share with you a a promise and a warning. And the promise is this. Spiritual growth is motivated by quality of life. Quality of life. Listen to this promise. One of the the promises I learned after I got right with the Lord as a 19-year-old and and, and, uh, I I was so excited to be learning some things from God's Word. This is one that just really blessed me. The thief does not come to accept, accept to steal and to kill. I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. The promise of Christ, the desire of Christ, the plan of Christ is for you to have an abundant life. Now the truth is this, the stuff of the world, the stuff of the sinful life, makes life enjoy, the, the, the stuff that makes life enjoyable or meaningful only does so for a short while. And then it leaves, and it leaves you wanting more. Ultimately, that stuff will rob you of your spiritual life and your eternal reward. Uh, This is a young woman who has been somewhat famous in recent years, Gia Alamande. She was on a reality TV show. She's been dating some professional athlete, and this last week she took her own life. Okay? Okay. She's rich and famous and dating a big, powerful man. What's so bad about that? I don't know. Other than I know the stuff that the world promotes as filling up life doesn't. Whether it's relationship, as good as a family is, whether it's money, as much as we need to support ourselves, uh, whether it's uh, recognition that you're some kind of a good person, which is not a totally bad thing, whatever that stuff is that people are pursuing, it doesn't do the job. 
Another actress died this week of a drug overdose. A man killed a girl's mother and brother and took her captive because he had a romantic interest in her. And then he was killed by the FBI in the capture process. Why does the guy do that? Because he's, he's looking for something to satisfy his soul. And he, he's gotten fixated on this young girl. Oh, I've got to have her. Even if it means I have to do violence. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Only he can change your heart and make you whole. He'll give you peace you never knew, sweet love and joy, and heaven too. For only Jesus can satisfy your soul. This is another one of my favorite promises. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. The stuff of life is often bittersweet. The stuff of God is sweet, sweet. Oh, there's hardship. Look at the Apostle Paul. Wow, hardship galore. But he lived in joy and peace. And think of his reward in heaven. It's hard to live godly. I know that. Uh, I know that every day. But it's good. It is good. It is good to have the blessing of God. And that's what I'm after in my life. And that's what I want to challenge you to. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Those of you with allergies, be careful of the dust while we turn. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is the warning that I want to to give you today. Spiritual growth is motivated by the quantity of life. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them, while the sun and the light... Now, if you've never read this or studied this, let me just tell you what this is about. He's going to describe old age, okay? No insult to any of you who are up there in years, uh, but there comes these days come, and many of you have seen them come to others, and some of you are seeing the shadows come yourself. Verse 2, while the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders, the teeth cease because they are few, and those that look through the window, the eyes grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding, you can't even hear a grinding wheel turn, when one rises up at the sound of a bird. And all the daughters of music are brought low. The hearing is gone, and yet somehow little, little noises of a bird keep you awake. Also, they're afraid of height, 
And they're afraid of tares in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden, and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go out in the street. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed. Talking about losing your physical life. Or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find what was acceptable words. What was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making of many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, in, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. God says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Let me paraphrase it this way. While you are still able. I saw a... Uh, a mom at the fair this week with her 12-year-old son or however he, old, he was. And as I, walked her, as I watched her walk by, I, I was there with the sheriff's office and doing some stuff there. And I thought, oh, oh, that's a girl that was in my youth group 30 years ago. And I said, hey, and I, I called her and, and she came over and talked, sure enough. And, and we talked and caught up. And I said, how are your parents doing? And she said, well, my dad is 71, and he's got dementia real bad. And uh, it's increasing, and we're trying to figure out what we can do. Now, her dad was a godly man. Her dad lived for the Lord. Her dad was a teacher and was extremely well-respected as a teacher. He even found some creative ways to bring Christian content into his school. Uh, was a good man. And now, very soon he will be at the point where he can't think anymore. Okay? There can come days in our lives when it is too late to remember our Creator. The Apostle James brought it down from old age to everybody's age. Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, we will spend a year there, we will buy and sell, we will make a profit... Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say this, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. The Apostle James is not trying to say to us, Whenever you're going to do something, say these words right at the end. If the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. Well, we're going to go out to lunch today. If the Lord wills. It's not a tagline that somehow mysteriously makes everything righteous. It is a thought in the heart which gets up in the morning and says, What does God want me to do today? Because all I know for certain is I have today. 
God has given me this day. God has given me this hour. He has given me this minute. How would God have me to use it? And if I approach life that way, I make priority choices that are good for him, which is good for me. And if God chooses to leave me till a ripe old age, if I have lived this way, then I will look back and see, wow, look what God has done in me and look what what God has done through me. What an incredible life I've had. But if I get up in the morning and think, what do I want to do? Where do I want to go? What do I want to accomplish? I I may accomplish those things on my to-do list, and I might just come to a shortened life, and I might come to that moment thinking, oh, there were some things I was going to do for the Lord. God, God wants us to be busy today, and every day that he gives us. That's A-Rod. Another famous guy right now who doesn't want to be famous. Because it's pretty well been proven. It's been alleged substantially that he has used a serious amount of performance-enhancing drugs which are against the rules. I don't know if it's against the law, but it's against the rules. And now he's going to be suspended for 100 games or whatever's going to happen. Maybe he'll be out of baseball forever. Here's the point of all this. Why would a guy stuff himself full of drugs, you know, maybe risk his future life? Why would he do it? Because he's making a boatload of cash. The highest paid player in baseball ever. Well, that's certainly worth ruining your physical body, I guess. He's famous, has quite a, quite a life there in New York City. He is a good athlete. And, and, and as far as we can see, apparently, all, not, not, not all professional athletes use drugs. I'm not saying that, but they all push and work and prioritizing their work and work and work and trying to be the best, trying to get the ring, trying to get the money in an endeavor that could evaporate tomorrow and it wouldn't matter a lick except to our economy. We are serving the King of Kings in our own personal life as well as whatever ministry we're involved with. If he's willing to be that devoted to be a great baseball player, shouldn't we be that devoted to be a good Christian? Heavenly Father, you know those things that I need to work on. You know those things that I need to prioritize. You know my failings. And I ask for your strength to make better choices and more choices so that I can know your blessing much more completely and thoroughly in my life. Father, help us. We battle with our flesh and it pushes back. Help us. Help us to succeed through diligence in the Christian life. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.